Hello and welcome to this new episode of the Fundraising Radicals podcast. I'm your host, Craig Pollard. The Fundraising Radicals podcast is about turning the world of fundraising upside down by sharing and exploring fresh, global perspectives on non-profit fundraising and leadership. These unscripted conversations with friends and colleagues old and new, ordinary and inspiring people who are fundraising and leading community projects, causes, charities and social enterprises in Asia, Africa, the Middle East and Latin America and beyond the traditional boundaries of the non-profit sector. I hope today's conversation challenges and inspires you to think differently about the world of fundraising and your place in it. I hope it helps you to reflect on your own fundraising practice and leadership. But now it's time for another dose of global fundraising ideas and inspiration. Welcome to this latest edition of the Fundraising Radicals podcast. I'm your host, Craig Pollard. Today's conversation and dose of fundraising ideas, inspiration, optimism and joy comes from Martha Awajobi. Martha is a consultant for nonprofits and she specializes in events, recruitment and income generation with an anti-racist lens. She curates BAME Online, BAME Online, which is a conference and a series of online events that center fundraisers of color, showcase new talent and create the space for the challenging conversations we must have if we are ever to get to the heart of how we can dismantle structural racism in fundraising and in the wider charity sector. Her mission is to support black and brown-led organizations who are critically underfunded and under-resourced to do brilliant work in their communities and to ensure that black and brown fundraisers are able to thrive within their organizations. I am really excited to be talking with Martha today and having a conversation that really matters. Yes, we're going to talk about white supremacy, about privilege and racism in fundraising, about the systems and structures of oppression that we're all conscripted into yet fighting against. But we're also going to talk about what lies on the other side of these challenging conversations. This matters not only for fundraising and the non-profit sector in the UK, but globally. At its heart, this is about equity, decolonization and dismantling centuries of global oppression and how we as fundraisers can find our place, our purpose and even joy as we challenge ourselves, others, and our organizations to collaborate and change. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about this stuff. I'm looking forward to it. I hope that you get the best of me. It's all good. It's all good, Martha. Tell me tell me about you, um, sort of how you got into fundraising, what you do. Yeah. Sure. Um, I got into fundraising by accident, as like most fundraisers do. I feel like everybody says that. So I am from London. Um, I'm from Tottenham originally, but I live in Manchester. And the summer where I turned 18, I was hanging out in Wood Green High Street. No one's going to know what high street I'm talking about, but that's fine. No, I do know. I know. I know Wood Green High Street. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's where we would go, uh, me and my friend Georgia. And I got stopped by a street fundraiser called Sam Copperman, right? I remember his name. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and I was too young to sign up. I also didn't have any money or a job. Um, so um, he said, okay, you can't sign up, but actually I'll get a referral fee if you come for a kind of, you know, interview at my organization. So I was like, yeah, I want money. Uh, so went there, did street fundraising, which I think is like the hardcore, the most hardcore type of fundraising. Um, I did that for two years. It was really, really tough. At one point I was a roaming fundraiser, you know, the ones that drive around the whole country. Oh, wow. okay. You'd work six days a week and then drive on the seventh day. And I just don't know if that's ethical, but <laughs> I did it anyway. <laughs> and, uh, I guess when being, being that age, right, you're sort of like quite resilient and you don't sort of like you, you, you're up for it seems like an adventure and it's exciting and it's hard work, but you do these crazy things, right? I cried a lot. Oh, did you? I cried a hell of a lot. It was so tough. And it was like, you know, the kind of, I think it's a brilliant form of fundraising, but I think also the kinds, I think what it demands from you, the kind of always being on, you're always present in the streets, you know, whether it's raining, whether it's windy, whether it's snowing, whether it's so hot that you literally are like, I cannot wear this annoying t-shirt for another minute. 
it actually was it is it's 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 really emotionally taxing but what I learned from that I don't think I've learned skills quite as important in any other type of job that I've done and so much of it was about how to capture someone's attention in five seconds how to help people come out of their shells how to listen how to you know, bring the best out of people in many ways, because, you know, we were trained to kind of think that it wasn't really the organization that people were signing up to, it was you. And I think, you know, that's the kind of flawed concept um, in many ways, and we can get to that later. But I definitely learned how to, how to maneuver, how to be charming, um, how to be quick, how to be slow, how to hide behind, I used to like hide behind post boxes and then like jump out and be like, ah. <laughs> you know, but, like how to have fun, right? Yeah. How to have fun and how to like bring other people into your fun. Um, I know I said I cried a lot, but I also laughed a lot, right? And it was a bit of an emotional roller coaster. So that's how I started in fundraising. And then over time, I had kind of various roles, like doing like, I did like loads of like data analytics for like fundraisers. That was really cool. So I got really into like spreadsheets, yeah. learned all of that stuff, learned how to kind of, you know, yeah, read data. I think that was pretty useful. And then I started doing corporate partnerships, which was, okay. yeah, it was, it was really cool. So I did corporate partnerships for most of my time in fundraising. So I'd say I did about five, six years in partnerships, um, working at first a small homeless charity, doing like local partnerships. And it was a homeless charity that was based in a really affluent area in Marlebone in London. And it was, again, just like mind boggling, like going from inside a homeless center where, you know, you're seeing people who are really bearing the brunt of capitalism mm. and then the building next door is worth two million pounds and there's no one in it. And it was, you know, I think that's where I started to kind of realize that there wasn't something quite right about the kind of fundraising I was doing, the way that the charity structure worked. I'm going to tell you my whole career story right now. Are you okay with that? Please do. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I'm, I'm just... I'm just sort of like reflecting on my own as well as, as you're talking and it's really interesting. So please carry on. Okay. There are moments where I'm like, gosh, this is really messed up. Um, I remember, you know, having, going to these kind of corporate dinners and like having lobster and then returning to the homeless center and just being like, this is messed up. And then I worked for a domestic violence charity, one of the larger ones in the UK. Again, still doing corporate partnerships, being part of a bigger team. I think that's where I started to kind of really hone in on like my, my talents in a very kind of institutional way. I'd say it was a little bit kind of like slapdash before that, but I was like really trained, properly trained into how to do partnerships, how to kind of, you know, do all of the contract side of things, how to like maximize value, like all of these buzzwords that like are just so not me. But that's what that's really interesting in itself, right? Yeah. <laughs> that the 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 sort of having to change yourself to mold into sort of the expectations within the charity setting and play that game to succeed. A hundred percent. And I'm just not I'm not really that type of person. And I think actually being in that organization, like I learned a lot and, you know, there was, there, I had a, I had a director who like looked for opportunities for me, like really pushed me to grow and, you know, was actually really instrumental in helping me find the courage to do some of the work that I've done since leaving that organization. So there was, you know, much with everything, there are like some really like shady, weird things going on, but also some really kind of important yeah. inspirational things happening. And, I think what I've learned over the last few years is to be able to hold both of those things at once and not be like, that was a messed up thing or that was brilliant. And actually, can I see the complexity of both of those things uh, being present in my experiences? And then we're at 2020 now. I got a job at the Roundhouse in Camden. I felt like it was so cool. Oh my God. I was like, oh, that is so cool. <laughs> I'd just been to see Janelle Monet perform there. And I was just like, yeah, I'm going to be hanging out with Janelle. I'm going to be hanging out with these people. Um, and then COVID happened. And oh, yeah, I never got to work a single day there. Um, and I was just about to move literally like a couple of weeks before the pandemic. But it's the best thing that could have happened to me because I had no job. Um, I was kind of free to do whatever I wanted to do. And 
I didn't like the idea, particularly like now that we were working from home, like I'd been doing lots of um, activism and kind of organizing work with a campaigning group called Charity So White. And we'd been putting on these like wicked events. Like we did an event called Funding So White where we got like a bunch of white funders together and we were like, talk to us about white supremacy. Talk to, you know, and it was just really, really, really cool. And people weren't talking about things in that way at that time, not in the UK and definitely not since, not before kind of the resurgence of Black Lives Matter in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I was like, wait, I could do more of this stuff. Like I've got Zoom, I've got an audience. People are interested in what I have to say. Um, I was campaigning with charity. So why I'd also won an award for being like one of the youngest influential fundraisers in the UK. And it was like, people were starting to know who I was. So I was like, all right. I would try, I would do my own fundraising consultancy. It hasn't quite worked out like that. Uh, <laughs> but, um, Does it ever though? But it's, <laughs> it's, it's, but it's interesting that that gave you the opportunity to pivot and, and, and really do what matters to you. A hundred percent. And I'm still working out what matters to me. I think I'm, you know, tr- I'm, I'm trying to find my place um, in a movement that I think is... Uh, aren't we all are, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I think just that flexibility of like, I'm not, I'm not there yet. There is no there yet. Like I'm always wanting to be moving and yeah, I guess consulting really suits me. Um, and in my first year I had so many different projects. I mean, I, the first thing I did was the BAME online fundraising conference. I did, um, you know, I started kind of doing fundraising consultancy for one of my favorite organizations called Glitch, which I'll talk about a little bit later. I was also getting commissioned to do like anti-racism training, to do recruitment of leaders of color into organizations like Comic Relief um, or into Stonewall. And it was just like, yeah, a really kind of like varied way that I was trying to like chip away at some of the things that I was seeing as issues in the charity sector. Whether I was successful or not is a different story, but I was trying. <laughs> but it sounds like you're, you're sort, of, sort of seeing the opportunities and not being defined by having to do sort of traditional fundraising consultancy and, and going in and doing this specific project, but you're able to, to choose who you work with and working on an individual basis as well, which is kind of cool and exciting, right? And, and if you're doing stuff that you feel deeply passionate about it makes a difference not only to the organization the people but there's something that i i you know not all my consultancy clients are equal right i'm gonna say that but because there's some that just feel deeply passionate about and that makes a difference to the work Mm -hmm. 100% 100% i mean i'm trying to cultivate a client list that i'm passionate about all of it and actually a big learning for me is just being able to say no not, I don't need to explain myself. Like if I'm not feeling something, then just saying no. And I think when I first started out, I felt like I had to say yes to everything. I didn't know whether I'd be successful. I ended up actually taking on way more than I could handle. And now I make very kind of values driven choices about actually, is this a values match for me? Can I explain that to myself using our values framework? And a lot of the time the answer is no, actually. Um, So we're definitely now in a place where we're only really working with organizations where we're like, hell yes. And what, what what are the sort of criteria for that though? What are the values? What are the sorts of organizations you really want to work with and you do work with? So I, I mean, I, even though I run a business, I still have values because I'm a, like a charity sector baby and I cannot escape the values. Like I love the good vibes. Um, yeah. So our values are anti-racism, bravery, curiosity, creativity, and joy, right? And in my first kinds of conversations with clients, I'm checking like, do they actually, are they actually serious about doing like anti-racist practice? Like whether it's in their fundraising, whether it's in their comms, whether it's in whatever, you know, will they name white supremacy as a kind of central uh, feature in our kind of society? You know, are they willing to really do what it takes to dismantle power structures? Um, so there's that, there's bravery of like, actually, will they use the words white supremacy? Will they talk openly about their journey? Will they challenge their funders? Yeah. And maybe they're not quite there yet, but do I see the potential there? Creativity yeah. is again, like, are they willing to abandon the structures that they know, right? The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Do they have enough imagination, enough creativity to totally rethink what it means to be an organization, a fundraising team, what whatever? And then curiosity is like, are they actually willing to learn? Like, 
or do they have like a curious hunger for learning? Because like for me, I am like, I'm I'm like a slug. Like I will like stick to a book. Like I'm just like <laughs> desperate to like learn. Like I will just like find my way and crawl my way into any hole that gives me like more knowledge, right? And I want organizations that will match me in that. And then joy is actually like, are we going to have a good time? Like, is this going to be fun? Because I don't want to work with an organization where I'm having to like fight with them to even admit that there's a problem or to admit that racism exists in their organization. So yeah, that's kind of the criteria. Speaking of a curious hunger for learning, I just want to take a moment to step out of this important conversation to explore what we mean by white supremacy. I'm going to share the words of Tema Okun from her book, White Supremacy Culture. White supremacy is a project of colonization, a project of appropriating a place or domain for one's use, according to the Oxford Dictionary. White supremacy colonizes our minds, our bodies, our psyches, our spirits, our emotions, as well as the land and the water and the sky and the air we breathe. White supremacy tells us who has value, who doesn't what has value, what doesn't, in ways that reinforce a racial hierarchy of power and control that diseases and destroys all it touches. When I say, as I do elsewhere, that our goal is to get free, what I mean is that we are engaged in the collective project of freeing ourselves from this project of colonization. We are decolonizing ourselves, our minds, our bodies, our psyches, our spirits, our emotions, our work, our homes, and the land, water, sky, and air. You can visit whitesupremacyculture.info to download the free PDF of Tema Okun's book. The link is in the show notes. And those feelings of discomfort and dispensiveness that get in the way of white people talking about racism and white supremacy, this is called white fragility. You can find out more about white fragility and its role in preserving white supremacy culture and racism within Robin D'Angelo's work and her book, White Fragility. The link is also in the show notes. And now, back to my conversation with Martha. And then in terms of the types of organizations we like to work with, generally they are ones who are kind of skirting in and around oppression. So women's organizations I love working yeah. with, queer organizations I like working with, organizations that are kind of thinking about mental health but thinking about it from a structural perspective or have what is almost there to think about it from a kind of structural, historical, yeah. capitalism, eugenics kind of perspective. So there's lots of different ways that I kind of assess organizations. And a lot of that is like vibes. It's like things I cannot put on paper to say, okay, like you said this thing and it gave me this particular feeling. And that particular feeling is not a feeling that I want while I'm working with you. I can't really articulate that. And often I don't, but I can kind of, you know, explain that to myself. Um, so instead of kind of having like strict due diligence processes, it is very much like, what does the vibe yeah. feel like? Can we catch Instinct. a vibe together? Yeah. Yeah. And that chemistry is so important. I mean, all of that stuff, do, do you find, because that that's super brave, right? To, to only work with, as, as, an, as a consultant setting out, I was, I was looking back, I found um, sort of my billing sheet from when my first year uh, when I set off by myself as a, a fundraising consultant, that was like 11, 12 years ago. And it, it just made me laugh, just like just the amounts of money. And I was just, I would just, don't, I just did anything because I just needed to make money. And it took a while for me to get to the point where I had the confidence and courage to say, look, these are the organizations. And I still struggle with it now. Like these are the sorts of organizations I will work with. These are the sorts of organizations I, I won't work with. But increasingly, do you feel in the early days of consultancy, it's really difficult to sort of narrow down your market, right? Just practically in terms of you need to want Do you feel now that because organizations that are committed to white supremacy, they all recognize white supremacy and committed to undoing white supremacy. Those that are committed to, to supporting vulnerable communities, it's quite a narrow niche. Do you find that it's, do you have enough work, enough interest in what you offer to sort of make a living? Yeah, actually, which is interesting. Like I was, I was like, are people really going to want this thing? But I guess I, you know, I'm a fundraiser, so I know about multiple streams of income. So we have multiple different services that we offer, right? Yes, we've got the fundraising consultancy and kind of BAME online, that kind of big piece of work, right? Which is like one side, which is very much based on my 
experience my area of interest but then we also do our kind of anti-racism consultancy um, which actually does pay for a lot of the other stuff that we do at a kind of cheaper cheaper rate I think I'm I've been quite I don't I don't know whether I've been quite fortunate I mean I work I work really hard like when I first set out I'm only three years in right so the best is yet to come I think right but when I first set out I made sure that every single person in the charity sector knew who I was and knew why I was different and not like a, I'm better than you, but actually like I am willing to be brave and I'm willing to do things that nobody else has really tried because what we're doing now does not work. Yeah. So people, people, people have really liked that. And I think something to do about the kind of authenticity and like vulnerability that me and the whole team that I work with brings I think, yeah, people are loving working with us, which, you know, I'm I'm grateful for. Like, I don't kind of take it for granted. But, yeah, like, my team's wicked. Like, we are some cool people. So I'm not surprised people want to work with us uh, because I want to work with the people that I work with. Like, I'm – when all of them, I was like, please work with me. I think you're so amazing. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you feel like you're, you're tapping into the a deep discomfort across the whole sector that this isn't working? And, and that you're you're sort of helping and others who feel that this is not working that deep discomfort and maybe don't understand why it isn't working do you are you helping them to navigate this yes and I think it's more than discomfort what I'm helping people to do is confront their own fears because I love talking about fear particularly in like relation yeah. to like white supremacy right like because like white supremacy yeah. is a, a, a project of fear right? It makes us yes. fearful of each other. So therefore we all act like police basically, right? <laughs> so there is something about... And, and, and there's inter- the internal fear as well, right? As, 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 a, as a white guy, as a white man, there is, a, there is a fear about not being sort of equipped for the future that I see coming as well. And, and, and looking back and retrospectively about the damage and harm that my privilege has caused to others. Mm-hmm. And there's that fear of like... And that's a difficult journey, right? 100%. There's a fear of loss of control, a loss of yeah. power, a loss of status, like all of that, like a deep kind of like... And it's like a fear that like children feel, right? Uh-huh. And this is like tapping into people's like deep inner child. And like I make room for that in like a joyful way and I'm... And I think it is like, I'm just like, let's just step into this fearful place and think about why we might be feeling these things, right? And actually make space for that. And I think making space for the emotional, not just the ideological, which I think is really important as well when we're thinking about, you know, how white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism conditions all of us, but actually like how we are all just little babies trying to make sense of stuff you know living in utter fear all the time and actually can we just confront that and can we let the baby within us guide us in joyful ways instead and I think it's 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 just a different type of proposition I guess and I think what a lot of people who come into my space is feeling really fearful they come out feeling quite relieved because they want to talk about this stuff like they don't want to live yeah. in perpetual fear like no one wants to sit there sweating anxious being like oh my gosh like I'm ill-equipped I'm not good enough and mainly like everyone's just thinking I'm not good enough so it is that kind of like and I'm not in like I'm not even into like psychology like that but it is kind of matching that kind of psychological emotional practical you know idealistic together in like one mind-blowing experience <laughs> of working with J&B consulting basically <laughs> I'm totally feeling that just talking to you now. I'm, I'm totally getting that. Because on, on the other side of that, I love this joy. I, I love that. I, I talk a lot about with my people who are working in corporate partnerships who are sort of a bit worn down, right? And do, I ask them, you know, do you feel excited to walk in that room with that next meeting with that corporate partner? And, you know, thinking about, you know, this is one of the measures of how successful and how sustainable your corporate partnerships are. But also on the other side of, of all this recognition and navigation of white supremacy and and privileged and, and and capitalism and imperialism all of that stuff there is something it feels there is something deeply joyful on the other side of all of that 100 percent. 
I mean, the opposite of racism is liberation. It is love, right? It is joy. Like thinking about like how oppression like crushes you down and like kind of shrinks you. Like the opposite is just going to set you free and like allow you to be like expansive, both like physically and how we like hold ourselves in how that we like reach out to each other, but also in like how we think and how we feel and how we love and, you know, the possibilities, I think, it, you know, are are endless, you know, and I think I I was talking today about kind of like hopelessness and feeling like dejected and I've I've never felt that way before um, <laughs> because I'm utterly deluded. <laughs> like I'm utterly deluded no, in that I all. think we can do it. Like, <laughs> There's a deep, the hat, but, but, but surely I think working in this sector, there has to be a deep core optimism because I, I, I feel that too. I feel a deep optimism. Sometimes I do feel a little hopeless about you know, looking at the rainfall here in Auckland about how it's something like 500% of the, the worst year ever at this year. You know, that's that the climate stuff, the social justice and equity stuff. That, that can feel overwhelming. But I think the optimism from working in the, the type of people that are drawn to this sector, the, I, I feel that that optimism is something we sort of all hopefully have. Because we, that's why we're in this work. That's what keeps us going. When we're street fundraising or, you know, meeting people that we're <laughs> asking for donations from people we don't particularly like or want to be in the same room as, right? That's the stuff that keeps us going as fundraisers. I think so. I mean, I hope so. I hope people go in for optimistic reasons. I mean, I've met some fundraisers that I think, why are you here? <laughs> like, why are you doing this work? Like, what does it serve you? So corporate partnerships, right? Ruthless people are drawn to corporate partnerships. And I have seen fundraising practices. I have seen, you know, organizations do things where I think that is the antithesis to your mission. Like that's about capitalism. That's about accumulation, about status, about your organization kind of growing because it's, I guess, copying the logics of capitalism of accumulation, mm -hmm. right? It's not actually about achieving this. But, but it's the point where the two sectors meet, yeah. right? I know, right? Where those two, two idealisms meet. <laughs> and and there's, there's so much conflict in corporate partnerships from both sides. It is. But it's fascinating. It is fascinating. It's And I think, for, I think uh, one of the people I work with called Khadija talks about how we are all conscripted. And I love that, right? Rather than saying complicit, you know, she says we're conscripted into empire. We are conscripted into doing things that if we understood the real impact of what we were doing, we would never do them, right? But we have no choice in many ways, or we are ignorant because, you know, we don't actually see the systems for what they are. And I think being in corporate partnerships, coming out of that, I'm like, damn, I was so conscripted, like really, really, really conscripted. And I thought it was a good idea to take money from, you know, property developers for homeless organizations. I was like, oh, well, they're doing their part. But really, I was just doing money laundering. Like, <laughs> and reputation laundering, yeah. Right? So it, it, it's always been really complicated for me, and that's why I don't do corporate partnerships anymore, really. But are we also, also because I love corporate partnerships. So I, I, I love them because I, I see an opportunity to really balance the value because I think most corporate partnerships are deeply undervalued on the charity side and the, the corporate partners are getting massive, massive value from this. Yes, 100%. And my, my view is that if if we can shift that balance significantly, I'm working on a couple now and really deeply build these sort of partnerships in purpose that are grounded in values and joy and these sort of things, then I think we can really start to shift charities. But but it, you're thinking about conscription, is it true that's also we're conscripted into the charity sector as well, sort of drinking the Kool-Aid and sort of becoming... I mean, the charity sector is white supremacy. <laughs> I Tell mean, me the more. The charity sector is, you know, a part of imperialism. Philanthropic imperialism is a thing. So, uh, yeah, we, you know, we are conscripted. I think the charity sector is a very interesting place where it has a lot of revolutionary potential right well maybe not revolutionary potential I think revolutionary is too strong of a word but there is a lot of potential for the charity sector to be really key in dismantling systems of oppression yeah. if it can decide what it is and who it stands for yes but is it is it one thing though as well because it's such a complex diverse group and I feel like increasingly 
I, I, I'm just thinking about the, the people in the organizations that I want to work with aren't sort of in the charity sector. They're, they're sort of in this sort of subsector that's committed to sort of humanity, justice, and equity. This group of organization and people and movements that are maybe not even, you know, organizations themselves. Mm. That's the space that is feels like revolution. You know, I, I, I won't work with universities anymore. I'm just not interested. Because fundraising consultancy and fundraising knowledge and skills are, have such power associated with them. And I think as with that power comes a huge amount of responsibility as to I, I feel who I am able and should share that knowledge and skills with because I, I see that as a as, as fundraising as an amplification as well of a cause and a message. It gives visibility to things. And I, so I'm, I'm now I've sort of been doing it for a while. I feel I'm really careful about who I train and who I work with. But and maybe you're right. I think when I say the charity sector, I mean like the charity industry, you know, like the big wigs. Right, the, the non-profit industrial complex, right? Yeah, the non-profit industrial complex. But obviously, of course, you have those organizations who are kind of navigating around it, like trying to chip at it. Who have, I mean, our, we're set up as a business yeah. because I was like, actually, I don't want to be in the charity sector, but I want to be whacking it from outside, right? And I think... You're right. And I think I've, I've been reading, I don't know if you've read, I can't remember what it's called now, Give Back, um, Derek Barderwell's book coming out. Oh, it's very good, coming out of the UK. And of course, uh, the revolution will not be funded beyond the nonprofit industrial complex. And they kind of talk about how, you know, the charity sector is kind of two things. It's got that kind of social justice element. It's also got the kind of imperialist arm. Yep. It's got resistance within it to it. <laughs> and kind of yeah, but, but in doing so but it also suppresses resistance right because it it, it sort of normalizes these behaviors and, and sort of pulls the resistance in through funding and and advocacy it pulls the fringe back into the mainstream right 100 percent. so in some ways it's sort of it, it's preventing the revolution but ca can the revolution be funded well, that is the big bloody question, Craig. That's the whole the whole theme of my conference this year is can the revolution be funded? I don't know. I'm I'm an optimist. I'm like, depends on who's funding it. Depends on how it's being funded. Depends on what funding means, you know. If we're talking about philanthropy as the love of mankind, what it, you know, the Greek root of the word, then like, hell yeah, it can be. But if we're talking about philanthrocapitalism, then absolutely not. Which is what philanthropy is now. I mean, yes, I get. I'd love to say. I'd love to say that you know, philanthropy now is known as the love of mankind, but it's not. It's actually wealthy white people. Exactly. But how do we get back to the love of mankind? The question is, how do we restore? I think philanthropy to not like a former glory, but to actually like its core of mm. you know being in community with people of mutual aid. And but glory, you use that glory, right? That word glory, that's what philanthropy is about now. Yes. It is the historic glory and the current glory and the individual glory, right? Or the organizational glory. It's about basking in this glow, right? And we need to sort of strip out all of this ego to get back to its roots. A hundred percent. And I've done a lot of the work. So I'm currently working with a foundation, right, who fund young people. And they're a really cool foundation. Out of all the foundation, not all of them in the UK, but out of, I think they're pretty decent, yeah? And we've been doing a lot of work on, like, white supremacy culture. I don't know if you've ever read the work by Tema Ocken, who kind of talks about the features of white supremacy culture. It is brilliant, right? And we were looking at all the features, like fear, urgency, perfectionism, paternalism there being one right way to do things worship of the written word and we were basically describing the organization like, and, and it was kind of you know not only were we describing the organization we were also describing the people in the organization and the what was valued in the organization we were describing the structures of the organization we were describing absolutely everything about the mechanisms and the emotions attached and it's it, it's it I, I find it fascinating like that you know we these organizations kind of position themselves as being able to 
alleviate the ills of capitalism and white supremacy. They don't use that language. That's essentially what they're saying. You know, we're doing good work. We're doing social justice. You know, we're creating fairer, equal societies, but they'll never name racism as being kind of part of that, right? Um, Yeah, they are completely mirroring the same logics as the East India Trading Company, Mm -hmm. essentially. Mm -hmm. Like, so... So it, it boggles the minds a lot of the time, but but it just goes to show like how deep the work has to be and like how it has to be work that essentially uproots everything that we know and love and value. And I think obviously that's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> and, and, and this, But discomfort is super important, right? Because that's the only way things can change. Because I, I feel like there's such comfort, entrenched comfort in the charity sector. You know, there's well-paid and people in you know and in institutions and and it's all very comfortable there's comfortable relationships with donors who are just like you know sometimes not great people but there's there's the comfort in not upsetting and not challenging the status quo but I, I feel like the more uncomfortable organizations and individuals feel that's actually progress that's probably might be the only indication that we're moving in the right direction the more uncomfortable we feel hundred percent. I mean, I love making organizations uncomfortable and they love it (laughs) too. Like they actually love it. Like it's been incredible. Like seeing the vulnerability of these organizations, like watching them go on a journey, like a journey where like, you know, sometimes people are crying in the sessions because it is just like everything I thought was important is white supremacy, (laughs) you know, or everything that I've been told is success is oppression you know, and that's really hard for people to hold. But I think what is brilliant about our work is that's not where it stops. It's like, okay, so what next? So what do we actually do? And that's, yeah, I've I've been really, 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 really enjoying it. Really enjoying it. If you're enjoying this episode and want to deepen your understanding and open yourself to new perspectives that center black and brown-led organizations and fundraisers, join Martha at BAME Online. BAME Online tickets are pay what you can, so it's for everyone, everywhere. To find out more and register, visit the websites of JMB Consulting or Fundraising Everywhere. The links are in the show notes. So what what are the next steps? So I, because, you know, what are sort of the next steps beyond the recognition of, of, of white supremacy? Because it, it, it touches on everything, right? When it pervades every single part of our lives and existence, what are the next steps, the practical next steps that once people and organizations are recognizing this, what's the next step of the journey towards the joy? Big question. Like, I don't actually always know the answers to this. Like, it depends on the organization. It depends on a lot of things. But I guess what's been really interesting for me is that a lot of the changes that seem to happen are quite symbolic changes. So it might be like we change the way that we talk. We change the language on our website. We start talking about being an anti-racist organization when we've done nothing to actually shift the structures. And I guess for me, it fundamentally comes down to moving resources, right? And if you are an organization that has loads and loads of money, why aren't you shifting it to grassroots organizations who actually know what it means to build a fairer, freer society, you know, a, a liberated society for us all? And something I've been reflecting on quite a lot is for white fundraisers in the UK particularly, um, what can they as individuals, as organizations do? You know, they can't like, suddenly like go and stop philanthropy from happening. But what they can do is they can work in collaboration with organizations who would never actually get access to that money. Now, what my fear is that if I tell white-led organizations, okay, so pitch for funding with this organization that is a CIC or community interest group that hasn't got charity status, How do they go into partnership with this organization without it being an extractive partnership, without it being a paternalistic partnership? So there needs to be kind of a fundamental kind of change of understanding what a charity's role is in kind of social justice and in liberating. And it is taking a a back step, being a resourcer, um, seeing themselves. And I think charities is so British as well. Like British people think they need to be the pioneers in absolutely everything. They're like, we sail the seas, we put our flag down, we did the thing. And it's like, actually, 
you're not the pioneers. Your pioneering attitude is what has got us into this mess or what's stopping change from happening. Yeah, but that's the roots of that. It is the fundamental core attitude that has that has got us into this mess. So it's just, this has been, you know, 100%. 500 years plus coming, right? And I think in the same way, so I would say to a charity, right, if you're working with a philanthropist, the philanthropist does not have the expertise, they have the money. But it's the same as a charity working with a grassroots organisation. It is likely that the grassroots organisation, the movement builders, the people who are kind of doing community organising, they have the expertise about what is needed for the most oppressed in society and the charity has the resources. So the charity needs to see itself as a bank of resources that can help to actually resource, fund, move intel, move, you know, like physical space, you know, offer your space for an organisation to work in. Give, you know, there is so much that, that, but it is repositioning yourselves and I think because of the individualism, again, Tema Ocken talks about in white supremacy culture of like, even in ending racism, my organization is going to be the one that does it. And it's like, are you mad? <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I'm seeing is like the, the kind of how do we how do we dismantle the charity sector? And like, how do we make it something that is fit for purpose? Like I see it as like, a hub of resource yeah. right and for collaboration over competition right yeah a hundred percent that just blows my mind that an organization thinks it can do that end racism it's so it's so interesting and it's like you know organizations think that they have to speak on absolutely everything or and it's like that is what stops us from being able to collaborate mm-hmm. with each other because we're constantly producing churn we think that what is important is hitting these ridiculous kpis that actually, I'd say, don't solve the problem that we are trying to solve, like the deep-rooted structural systemic issue. Make a sense of urgency, make us so busy that we can't see across the horizon who's doing the same work and how we could really work together, right? And um, I think urgency, a false sense of urgency, is one of the biggest things that's holding the people in the charity sector back, and that is urgency that is created both by funders who have all kinds of competing things that they want you to do. You might have to write, you know, five, six different reports for different funders in different styles. So there's the urgency that the funders have created, but then there's also the urgency that charities create where they think we're the only ones that can deal with this problem. Therefore, we have to, you know, literally like kill ourselves, (laughs) you know, and, and it's all false. And but everyone's talking over each other as well. It's sort of like just like it, you know, there's an international day for this. You know, so we have to have a voice on it. We have to be talking about this. We have to be doing our social media posts. We have to be competing for donors and this sense of competition that's just so deep. And I, yeah, this this idea, this false urgency, which fundraising has had a massive role in building and reinforcing. Hundred percent. Something I regret a lot in my fundraising career was chasing money that then meant that service teams had to change their work, do things that actually wasn't what they needed to do, and not collaborating with them properly to know that I could or to to say to say no, basically, and to understand like what I was doing. Um, I'd say that some, that was yeah a, a huge learning for me when I was working in, in the homeless organization was a, a so much of it was about actually I was so focused on what the funder wanted and to the detriment of a lot of the people in the front in frontline positions you know they were having to do you know I'd be like oh my gosh funders coming in so now we have to like look busy and we've got to put on a show for them and they're like well actually I need to do this like very important piece of work this mental health xyz and I was like no 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 <laughs> you've got to meet the funder <laughs> and again that that's been a, a huge 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 learning for me about fundraising fundraising I don't think plays well with any of the other teams <laughs> in charities in larger charities I understand why people hate fundraisers like I really do not hate I think that's a very strong word but at loggerheads with the comms team at loggerheads with service delivery at loggerheads with the advocacy team at loggerheads with policy a lot of the time but I feel like it's it's fundamentally because the systemic focus is on 
income and growth and we justify it by looking at pointing to the cause and say look there's so much more we need to do we need to do and this this obsession with income and growth and and again just competing and this false this false sense of competition that doesn't really need to be there 100% because we could do much better if we actually collaborated and worked in true partnership but i i have hope i because because i see those organizations where fundraising isn't an individual's responsibility people some in, in organizations don't even have fundraising in their title but you know they you know often overseas but where fundraising and resource mobilization is 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 shared the responsibility between programs teams and and the chief exec and and the trustees are engaged and they realize that this is not an individual pursuit this is a team project to secure the resources to do our work and i feel that that's when it, those that sort of tension starts to break down tell me why tell me about your because i was just going to be like because of funders okay. <laughs> because of funders but that's the other side of it right <laughs> but what? that's the that's the external driver yeah, definitely but i like what you said about kind of the everybody chipping in and something that i found really great i worked with an organization called glitch they were like my first fundraising client when i started my consultancy and they didn't have a fundraiser for a really long time but the work that we did was how did, did you know did you know people there had you how how did they how did that sort of come about that first connection because i think that's really interesting oh do you know this is an actually even nicer story than okay. the story i was about to tell so <laughs> i it it all just worked out really nicely like so i became i was introduced to a philanthropist or a funder i feel like i don't know why i said philanthropist (laughs) we're all part we're all stuck in this right (laughs) you know um, yeah let's say a funder um they're based in the states and they have been paying me every year to deliver a certain amount of consultancy days for smaller grassroots or kind of organizations that aren't set up as a charity um, who are working along racial justice or around kind of um, asylum issues and like refugee issues right it is the best okay this is like the best and sweetest deal that I have because this these organizations they don't pay anything they might get three four three to six days of my time in that time we will do strategy. And I'll be like, this is all of the ways that you could fundraise. Mm-hmm. This is the pitfalls to all of these things. And I'm always encouraging people to set up really strong trading arms. Yeah. Um, that's like my favorite part okay. of fundraising. I'm like, actually, like, how do you maintain your integrity? You offer a service. You offer Perfect. a product, right? Yeah. You bring people into your world and be like, this is how things should be done. And I love it. Like, I absolutely love it. So I've been working with them for three years now, and I have worked with some of the most inspirational, smaller organizations who their visions for the future is so bloody expansive. Like I couldn't even, I couldn't even dream that while I was asleep. Like I literally couldn't, right? Um, And it's been so kind of special to me because I do a lot of work with larger organizations around kind of like anti-racist practice. And this keeps me grounded in like, actually, what are the material issues facing people who are at the kind of worst end of the brunt of the state, you know, who do not have citizenship, Mm. who are migrants who are being, you know, faced by horrific, you know, demonizing rhetoric who are like in fear for their lives a lot of the time, right? In fear of kind of their precarious status in the UK um, or who are thinking about how do we build other worlds? How do we create anti-racist futures? How do we protect black activists? And working with them is just, it's the dream. Like it really, really, really is because like all of this stuff about, okay, like I've made these mistakes in my fundraising career. I feel like I'm atoning for Mm. my sins in many ways, right? Doing doing this work. And actually, you know, you spoke about the power and the expertise that like a well-trained fundraiser has. Being able to share that and also to be challenged on like, these are the more messed up parts of it. And actually this is how a grassroots organization would take this concept and run with it, right? Has been like, opened my eyes to how... And it's one of the organizations I work with called Migrants and Culture. They have, as part of their, I don't know if I'm supposed to share this, but maybe they'll never know. As part of their fundraising strategy that that we built together, they have a section, a strict kind of a, you know, an income stream called Economies of Solidarity. And I've just like, mind blown, you know, they're like, actually, what does it mean to 
and, and and as you kind of said earlier, you know, everybody pitching in, yeah, thinking about this beyond money. How do we kind of collaborate together to get money? How do we share space? How do we share things? How do we create an economy of solidarity? And like that's like central, the first, you know, central to their fundraising strategy. And I'm just like, I, because of the training that I've had, could never ever think of that. And now I can't think of anything else. You know, and it's, it's it's so exciting. It's so exciting. It's so exciting. And 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 so yesterday I did another one of these interviews with a guy called Ezra Hirawani who founded the Maori Kaupapa business here in New Zealand. And this is another great example. And they they're a business, but then they don't care about their status. That's just a shell. It's like how other people perceive them, right? And what they're doing is just that they are focused on people who are living in power poverty, who can't afford the electricity bills, who have PTSD because they're worried every time they switch on the light that their electricity might not be there. And so they are now an energy firm. They've set up their energy firm to address power poverty. That's so cool. And they, and they now that's so cool. It's so cool. And 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 what he's what they're doing is. They're deeply disrupting it, but they're being super thoughtful about how they grow and maintaining their fanau, which is the Maori family and community at the heart of everything they do. But people are paying. So I'm, I'm a customer. I pay my energy bill. I get a discount on my energy bill and the profit that another firm would have made goes into their fund to offset people who can't afford electricity's bills. Yeah, yeah. That is so amazing. And, but they're also linking them, but they're linking them to social services as well. So it's so that they're not the people who are on the other end of the phone are just like, we're not here to give you grief about the fact that you've missed your payment. What's going on with you and who are the services? So if we can direct you to a food bank, you might be able to afford your electricity bill. So it's a real sort of sense of citizenship and this building of community. And, and these are the I feel like this is the future. Me too. Me too. And it's so exciting. It gives me that joy and hope. And it sounds like like the same sort of thing, This these ideas of creative 100 creative ways of securing fund, funding you know economies of solidarity that is just a, a completely it's beautiful that's the thing it's beautiful and it tells you everything that you need to know about that organization and like how they view money and i had um i had a um speaker at my conference last year who was in is indigenous um canadian right and they were talking about the measure of wealth in their community being not what you own but what you give away and I was just like, oh, my God, like, you know, it's these like small things that come from people who are either, you know, uh, colonized people, uh, people who are, you know, who are living in the imperial core, but are still kind of yeah. col colonized citizens who are bringing with them their ways of understanding community and being with, you know, and showing us how to live genuinely. And, like, it's, you know, all of the answers are out, are there if only we allow these people to show us how to live. And I think what's been so humbling for me has been like working with these smaller grassroots organizations and, you know, seeing that they don't have a choice but to be innovative, but to dream, but to, you know, heal, right? And it's like really, really allowed me to do the same, but also to understand kind of the role I play as a bit of a bridge, I think, between the grassroots and kind of these institutions because I can speak in their mm -hmm. language yeah the language of the institutions the language of philanthropy but my heart mm -hmm. is somewhere else <laughs> right and that you know it is it feels like a lot of responsibility sometimes it can feel like a really difficult tension for me but you know that responsibility and accountability that I have to like my communities yeah, it's it's really important, and in the way, yeah, it's it's really informed my practice over the last the last few years. I still feel like I got a lot to learn, got a lot to unlearn, don't we all? Um, but yeah. yeah, it's been really really great, and it's so funny because when I started, I hated fundraising by twenty twenty. I was like, I hate this. It makes me feel bad. I don't like what I'm doing. The relationships I'm in don't feel quite right and it's like renewed my love of fundraising um which is which is awesome I thought I'd never like it again I was like this is rubbish and horrible but actually I was like and you, but you you're about to step into that fundraising role at the roundhouse right as well and just 
it could have been so different. And I'm so relieved and so delighted that that happened to you because it seems like you're bringing, you're, you're having such an incredible impact in the sector and you're, you're asking the questions, but you're finding really sort of and supporting people to navigate towards this future, this, this different idea. So it's not, you know, the revolution might be funded, but it requires us to look at funding in a completely different way and listen to the communities who are actually supported and understanding all of the historical issues and the and the systemic issues as well to get to that point it's so exciting and pretty much <laughs> <laughs> Yay. let's talk about the the conference tell me tell me about the conference okay what do you want to know i i want to know how how it started why why it matters and why people should come to it okay so it started in 2020 and it was a an organization called Fundraising Everywhere. And they gave me my first big platform to shout at the charity sector. Like they literally were just like, just go and shout at them. And I was like, I'm going. Uh, now I just talk in a normal voice, but the shouting was good uh, in 2020. But the shouting happened. But the, but it's interesting because I, I find that the shouting is super important at the start of the journey to sort of jolt people out of their comfortable existence. That's so interesting. I was having a conversation with someone called Monica, whose surname has now slipped my mind, um, who was talking about kind of resistance in the aid sector and how like shouting and screaming is so important because those people who shout give people permission to talk uh, because they're so extreme that actually it kind of allows the space, right, for people mm. to kind of fill in the gaps between the whispering and the shouting. And actually it means that the conversation can move. Um, which I was like, damn, that's, that's so good. That is good. <laughs> I really like that. That's my, my, my own sort of journey towards sort of this started with my sister shouting at me. Oh, okay. Just about, about recognizing my privilege. And this was years and years and years ago, but that was the jolt. That was like, oh, that started that journey of reflection Yay. and consideration of my own sort of personal privileges, my myriad privileges. But so you're, 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 you started the, the BAME online shout by shouting. Sorry, I have ADHD, so I will listen. It's all good. It's all good. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's why there's no point ever like having like a structure because I'm just like, we're going to do things well, however the brain meanders. And you, you saw my briefing notes, right? They were just like a sort of stream of consciousness. But but so so you started sort of started sort of the like the shouting yes. and then and now you talk in a sort of normal voice but now I talk in a normal voice now I laugh great um, I did laugh a lot before but there was a lot of shouting too so so it started in in response to a, a, a report by an organization called Ubele Initiative right in um, the UK a small kind of black-led organization that said and this was in the kind of early months of the pandemic before George Floyd was murdered and it said that without urgent funding investment nine out of ten black and brown led charities would close in the first three months of the pandemic. And that was terrifying for me, right? As someone who was a fundraiser, it was that was a big wake up moment for me. I was like, fucking hell, I, have ne I hope I can swear, because uh, I did. <laughs> I have never fundraised for a black led organization. I have never used my skills. And like, you know, I was fundraising for organizations that had income already in the millions. And these organizations, they need a hundred thousand pounds. And I could do that. Yeah. Like that's, yeah. you know. That's well within my capabilities. So I was thinking, oh my gosh, like this is like a real kind of like wake up call. Like I didn't even think about the fact that, and I was an anti-racism campaigner at the time. And I was just like, wow, like this is really touching a nerve. So fundraising everywhere actually approached me because they knew that I'd lost my job um, <laughs> and said, will you cur curate this conference that is for black and brown fundraisers or black and brown People in organizations led by people of color who might not necessarily have a fundraiser mm -hmm. or who are really reliant on trust and foundations and share the kind of skills, tricks, and all of the intel about how to do brilliant fundraising. And I was like, this sounds perfect. This is exactly my kind of thing. Uh, but because I am a collaborative person, I went into communities. I spoke to like loads of different organizations um, and loads of like fundraisers of color who were in larger organizations and said, what do you need? from this conference and actually what came out was that people wanted to talk about institutional racism in the charity sector they wanted mm -hmm. to talk about it from a kind of philanthropic perspective but 
it was like an open opportunity to like capture so many people and actually like push the conversation that was very much and is still quite stuck in the equality, diversity and inclusion nonsense and push it further into, you know, thinking about anti-imperialism, anti-capitalism, anti-racism. So curated this conference, 6,000 people bought tickets. That's incredible. It was unbelievable. How did you feel? How did you feel? Because that must have just blown your mind. I cried every single day. <laughs> like, I was just like crying the whole time. Like it was just so intense because not only was it like, a, I think a relief for so many people, yeah. like here is a space that like I've been like, I didn't even know that I wanted, you know, and it was a lot of pressure for me. But at the same time, like I was having the time of my life. I can imagine. It's it was incredible. just so incredible. Like, connecting with these organizations, like learning about fundraising again, like thinking about how to like weave a story. And like, I'm a storyteller, I'm a fundraiser. So like all of my conferences tell a story. So the way I position my sessions is to kind of tell a story about like history and then kind of the present and like an imagining a future, right? Or I'll do kind of like theory and like learning and then practice, like that kind of thing to just like bring people up and down. We know what we do, you know, fundraisers. <laughs> and... um So what was really special about this conference is, and it's still the same, is pay what you can. So people can come regardless of whether they have a training budget, regardless of whether they have any personal income, all they need is access to the internet, which these days is actually not so, (laughs) it's a little bit different. We've just had a million people in the UK cancel their broadband. And it's mainly people who are on universal credit. And actually, like, those are the kinds of people that would really benefit (laughs) from going to a conference like this. But Mm -hmm. it is online, which means that more can come. It's pay what you can. We split profits with Black-led organizations. And usually it's, like, Black trans-led organizations. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, something that's really important to me when I'm talking to organizations all the time about moving money. I'm like, okay, well, let me move some of my own, (laughs) like, you know. Completely. Actually, like, can we show what is possible through this conference? Completely. And... Over the last few years, it's kind of morphed. It's become a little bit more radical, but also we've started to kind of, yeah, bring, so we sell organizational tickets. So we have like Oxfam, British Red Cross, Mind send their entire staff team. So it is starting a kind of like learning revolution. Like that's what I'm seeing. And I think a lot of people are having their aha moments. Like I genuinely think like this is an incredible space for change. Yeah. Because it's not so academic that like people don't understand, Mm -hmm. right? Or it's not not using words that like are kind of, you know, so far removed from people's day-to-day kind of practical lives. But it is pushing people further than equality. Mm -hmm. You know, it's pushing people kind of further than we should all be nice. <laughs> and, and we all believe in, you know, a fair, fair world. And it's like, okay, well, what is a fair world? A fair world is a just world. What's a just world? A just world is a world free from, from oppression. What does that look like? It's anti-capitalist, it's socialist, you know, it's all of these things. And that's, and that's uncomfortable conversations that are only going to get us there, right? Exactly. So it's, yeah, this is our fourth one wild in the second year so exciting i'm i'm really looking forward to it yeah oh it's gonna it's gonna be really really good like i've got just got the program ready we've got our like trailer coming out like it's really good and what's it until remind me the theme the theme is can the revolution be funded and i don't know if we're gonna get to an answer but yeah some of the sessions i'm really looking forward to i mean i'm you know i i created them all but you shouldn't be getting to an answer right this is not about coming to an answer, right? That's This is about an exploration. It's an expedition. Well, I feel like... This... Because, you know, this is a five... This is a this is a centuries-old problem. Yes. And it, it's about setting a new horizon, right? And, and thinking practically about how we can transition towards something that's better. I agree. And I do... I personally do think that the revolution can be funded, just not by the people we think it's going to be funded by. <laughs> yeah. You know? But I mean, who knows? Like, we, we might see like tomorrow, tomorrow, <laughs> in the next 10 years, like a, money just move. Like, it could happen. There's so many amazing organizations out there, like Black Feminist Fund in, you know, decolonizing wealth. We've got our own in the States, resourcing racial justice, Baobab Foundation, Project Talwa, who are these kind of challengers, right? Who are actually thinking, we need to control our own resources we need our own power this should be kind of you know by us for us that stuff is like super exciting i'm having a look through the program and but but what it's interesting but it's interesting what you're saying about can the revolution be funded can the it's it's not just about funding it's can the revolution how how will the revolution be resourced 
Yes. Because this is about people shifting people and power and funding. And funding is just one of those things. A hundred percent. I think so. And there's, you know, if we're thinking about, you know, we just did an event on decolonization um, earlier in the day. And like so much of that is about land, right? The return of land. Yeah, land rights, yeah. And when we're thinking about can the revolution be resource, like we can talk about funding, but what about actual space for communities? You know, what about community centers? What about places where people can grow their food, where people can connect with the land, where we can kind of restore our, you know, ecologies of care? And you're right, like it goes way beyond that kind of question of of funding. And maybe I should say, can the revolution be resourced? But that doesn't quite have the same ring to it. Not for a fundraising conference. (laughs) (laughs) People are like, snooze fest, not coming. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, Martha, I I feel like I could talk to you for another hour, but I'm really conscious that it's super late there. I massively appreciate it. Yeah, it's way past your bedtime. Thank you so much. I've really deeply enjoyed this conversation and, and and I'm really enjoying the challenge that you're bringing and and the the difference that your work that you get such joy from is making so thank you so much for talking to me today I really appreciate it thank you for having me I feel very special to be the first person from the UK on the fundraising radicals podcast <laughs> um, and the best person from the UK as well. of <laughs> it's been really really great and it is you know it is past my bedtime but I've been having my cup of tea and actually this has been a really it's reminded me of why I love fundraising and actually like what its potential can be and is right so yeah thank you so much it's been really fun and nice there are so many brilliant ideas and challenges in this conversation but i love how martha presents these as our shared collective challenge and her sense of optimism and joy for what lies on the other side of these transformative and necessarily difficult conversations the ones that we have to have with ourselves and each other and within the charity sector I'm also really grateful to Martha for this conversation, for her energy, her kindness, her passion, and her tolerance. It felt like a learning journey for me personally, and I can totally see why organizations seek out Martha to guide them, not only to secure funding, but to also use this process to navigate the deep personal journeys that engage us with white supremacy and racism within fundraising and the charity sector, and how we can dismantle these structures and systems that conscript us. Imagine if we were to move away from the false urgency that the fundraising non-profit and donor dynamic have created. If we can move forwards with collaboration and humility that we can't fix this ourselves and that we must centre the communities that do hold new ideas and models. If we're willing to stop running in the wrong direction and look around and listen, we might just find more economies of solidarity. I hope that this conversation helps more of us white men and women working within the non-profit sector to reflect on our privileges, to challenge ourselves and to find the roles we can play in deconstructing these systems. Some first steps might be to read the books that Martha suggests, Giving Back by Derek Bardowell and White Supremacy Culture by Tema Okun and also the excellent The Revolution Will Not Be Funded and White Saviorism in International Development. And of course, do register for the next BAME online conference. I'll see you there. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Fundraising Radicals podcast and that this conversation has challenged, informed and maybe even inspired you and your fundraising leadership practice. Please do check out the show notes, subscribe to the podcast on the platform of your choice and do visit fundraisingradicals.com to find out all the ways in which we're working to empower, equip, and engage fundraisers all over the world.